Well, a very good morning to you all, if you take your seats. Uh, I just want to start off this morning with just a little bit of clarification about last week, and then we'll pray and we'll look at uh, the passage we had read to us just earlier. Um, there was a bit of confusion about how I ended last week's sermon, and I just wanted to make sure that we're all clear. COVID-19 is a massively divisive issue in our society at the moment, isn't it? all kinds of things. Inside and outside the church, it can become a problem. Uh, some of us feel unsafe and we want more protections in place. And some of us feel frustrated uh, and just want all the restrictions lifted. That's the situation we find ourselves in. And my comments at the end of last week were not meant to single any single person out. This is a matter of individual conscience and we need to treat it as such. The issues for each one of us are very real and felt real as well in our hearts. Uh, and people are acting on their consciences, and that's right that they should do so. And the comments I made at the end of my sermon were not said then in judgment of anyone. I was just trying to highlight the situation we find ourselves in. The elders of the church here are trying to care for the whole church. Uh, so we want in no way to belittle or to brush aside the views of either side in this. We obviously can't give everybody exactly what they would, would like. We, we just can't do that because it's, it's impossible. Uh, what we must not allow is for our particular views, any of us, to create hostility between us. We can't let that happen because the unity of the church is so precious. We've got to root that sort of attitude out in our hearts as we reminded the church a number of weeks back, didn't we, the current situation presents us all with an opportunity to exercise love for each other. And that's what we should be doing. That's the point I was hoping I was making last week. Because issues like this are not new. And issues like this will always exist in the church, won't there? Where, you know, the Bible talks about weaker and stronger believers and clearly teaches that in such cases, whilst we figure out where we're going... We need to be, each of us, willing to lay down our rights out of love for one another. And I pray that we will do so. So let's pray uh, now before we start this next part of the book of Acts. Father, we thank you for the unity that we have together as your people. Unity in one common faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Members together of his body. Help us to care for each other to be humble, to be loving, to be gracious where differences of opinion occur. And help us now, we pray, as we open, as we read, mark and learn from your living word together. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. Now, after the Second World War was over, uh, Germany ended up being divided essentially between two administrations with two very different ideologies. I suspect most of us are aware of that history. You had the communist East on one side and you had the capitalist West on the other side. And the capital city, Berlin, fell within the communist GDR side of the divide. And so the city itself became essentially divided a divided city within the Eastern Communist Territory. And that made Berlin an ideal weak spot for emigration from the East to the West. Under the communist ideology, 
The East was held back economically, whilst the West boomed. East Germans looked on that sort of rapid economic progress going on and the far higher standard of living in the West. And materialism and capitalism worked their influence and people started to leave in their droves. You're probably aware of this. It's in the history of mo most of us. I was doing my GCSEs. I was talking to Sarah about this recently. We, we were doing our GCSE history when the wall came down. It was a very exciting time to do history. But despite the best efforts of the authorities in the East, by 1961, 3.5 million East Germans had managed to escape to the West. It's amazing, isn't it? And they'd done it through the immigration loophole that Berlin presented with its wall. And that was about, let's just put that in context, that was about 20% of the population. Gather that. 20% of the population escaped. And the authorities started to panic. Those with a higher education, you see, were disappearing from the population at an alarming rate. And uh, clearing a great channel across the city, the solution they found, the Easterners, started to construct a great concrete barrier right through Berlin. Here's a picture of it. It's, it's now come down, hasn't it? And it divided east and west. The Berlin Wall was put in place, really, to halt the population drain and to keep out the influence, the ideologies of Western capitalist uh, Europe. That's what walls do. Well, they do two things, don't they, walls, when you think about it? And I want us to think about this this morning. First of all, they keep things out, right? Uh, and second of all, they keep things in. So they're for keeping things out and for keeping things in. But either way, what walls always do is divide. They divide people. Now, it wasn't a physical wall, at least back in those days it wasn't, but the same principle applied for Israel. It's what we started looking at last time we were together. Israel, in the Old Testament, were given all kinds of rules. You remember? They were given regulations and rules that were designed to protect them from the powerful influence and ideologies of the wicked nations that surrounded them as they moved into the Promised Land in Canaan. There was always the danger, you see, that they might look on at their pagan neighbours all around them and envy their way of life and want to move over. And so amongst other enticements, you need to get this, these nations were renowned for their heady, sensual religion with ecstatic rituals and shrine prostitutes. Imagine the lure of that. Why go to a dull temple service when you, you know, where you, you offer a tenth of your money, your income, you know, when the gods next door just want you to come over and indulge in sensuality? Why, you know, why, why, would, you, why would you do your boring religion when there's this exciting one next door? And the pull was strong and the pull was dangerous. You know, we, we used to uh, illustrate this with young people. Maybe many of you who've been through a youth group have probably seen this illustration, where you pull out a chair and you get one of the young people to stand on the chair and then you get another one of the young people to stand next to them and you say, right, you... You couldn't do it now, nowadays because of health and safety, could you? But now, you try and pull them up and they're going to try and pull you down. Well, what inevitably happens? It's very predictable, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that's a parallel because those on the moral high ground cannot easily pull up those on the low. 
It's just how things work. But those on the low moral high ground find it very easy to pull down those on the high. And so you see, God established a wall, an invisible wall, to offer protection to the people, to help them. Separate yourself from these people. Stay away. Don't go near their religion and and stuff. Don't defile yourselves. And the wall was a good wall. But why? Because everything God makes is good. It's a good wall. Make no mistake about that. To help keep you pure, don't eat the food they eat. Don't go to the places they go. Don't do the things they do. Because all of those things will end up defiling you. Be careful, says God. If you eat with them, which is always symbolic in the Bible, it seems to me, of developing close relationships with people. If you sit down and eat with them, you're likely to end up making yourself unclean. So don't do it. Because if you do, you'll end up cutting yourself off from your own community and indeed cutting yourself off from God. Keep clean, obey the rules and regulations, and you'll avoid the influence of Canaan. Disregard these walls, and down you'll go, down the slippery slope into idol worship and immorality, which is what we see that actually happened, isn't it? Now, fast forward 1,300 years to Acts, where we are now. Chapters 10 and 11, we did chapter 10 yesterday, they are basically about the, the dismantling of that wall. It's being taken down. These chapters tell us the story about how God himself now removes the wall and welcomes into his community, into his church, non-Jews. And he does so on equal basis with the Jewish people, with Jewish believers. That's the big point you've got to get here, isn't it? And it's a very clear and important lesson that we have here for actually the church in all ages. It has lessons for all of us. It's not just about its moment. Perhaps that's why Luke reports this story three times. Have you noticed that? You start to get a little bit like, I know, I know, Luke, I get it. First of all, you've got the narrator's perspective, haven't you, in chapter 10? And then you get it again from Cornelius's perspective. And then in chapter 11 now, we're getting it from Peter's perspective. You see that? We've got three records of this story. The whole point of that, I think, is so that no one will, able, will be able to ever argue again, really, that Gentiles are excluded from the church or that Jewish believers are in any way superior. That's the point being made, isn't it? Those two points. And so in this <coughs> chapter, chapter 11... We hear, as we open up the chapter, that word's gotten around, hasn't it? And many of the all-Jewish church are concerned about what's happened. Have a look with me at verse 1. Let's look at it together. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. I'm going to put this on because I should have done that right at the beginning and I forgot. And maybe the sound quality will be better. Here we go. Apologies to the sound desk. The the sound desk is one of those things, isn't it? They they get criticised when things go wrong. uh, But when it's anyone else's error, (laughs) we just blame them, don't we? Uh, Now, the rest of this section that we've read, verses 4 to 18 contains Peter's defence of what's happened. 
And it's a defense, at least at this point in the story, the unfolding story we've got here, that seems to completely put the issue to bed. There's no arguing with it. And, and nobody does argue with it. It's fascinating. And, and why is it so powerful? Well, in brief, Peter describes what someone's called four hammer blows of divine revelation as evidence, for, uh, you know, as justification for what he's done. Four hammer blows. Four encounters whereby God has supernaturally interacted with him on this issue. And those hammer blows have finally managed to take down his own racial and religious prejudice. So first of all, first hammer blow. Peter tells them that he had been praying on a rooftop in Joppa when, verse 5, look, I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds of the air, and I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And Paul uh, so Peter tells them this vision was repeated three times until he finally grasped, didn't he, that animals, these animals are symbolic of the issue with the Jews and Gentiles. If the food is not unclean, you see, then neither are those who eat it. At least no more so than those who don't. And it was a voice, this is the point here, it's a voice from heaven, says Peter, that made that declaration. Not Peter's voice, not the opinion of any man. It was a voice from heaven. Then, second, second hammer blow. Just as his vision's wrapping up, Peter, Peter hears the arrival of messengers from Cornelius. In verse 12, look, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. It was the Spirit that told me to go, says Peter. I didn't just go thinking, oh, it'd be a really good idea to go visit the Gentiles now. The Spirit told me another hammer blow of divine revelation. Thirdly, when he gets there, Cornelius' testimony in verse 13, look, he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He give, an angel that gives, that gives Cornelius the address of Simon Peter to go and find him. And then, fourthly, the clincher in verse 15, look. As I began to speak, so as he's told the gospel to these people, the Holy Spirit came on them just as he had on us at the beginning. So you've got a voice from heaven a command from the Spirit, a visit from an angel, and a baptism with the Holy Spirit, just like the Jewish believers had received at Pentecost. I mean, that's pretty compelling, isn't it? How do you ever argue with that? Well, you don't. And so Peter sums it all up in verse 17. <laughs> who was I to think I could oppose God? Brothers, who do, you, who do I think I am to, to oppose God's view on this? It wasn't my idea. I would never have wanted to mingle with Gentiles. It, but it was God's idea. It was God's idea. If you want to criticize what I did, take it up with God. And you know, it's actually strikingly similar, this, isn't it, to when uh, Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin. Do you remember? You, know, you judge for yourselves. Do we obey you or do we obey God? Which do we do? 
But again, strikingly, the response of those they're speaking to is dramatically different. Have a look, verse 18. It's just beautiful, isn't it, this response? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God. If only the Sanhedrin had done that, saying, so then, God has granted even to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Hallelujah. And we should be saying hallelujah to that, shouldn't we? We, Gentiles. I mean, isn't it great the way this all unfolds? These Jewish believers had just had a large piece of their heritage, their worldview, not just challenged, but demolished, dismantled. And instead of grumping around and putting up barriers, they praise God. They praise God. Now, essentially, that's why this story's here in Luke's book. I mean, it's what we've been singing about and praising God for this morning, isn't it? His love for the nations. This is how it happened. This is God's program for expanding his church so that it is vibrant and full of color and variety and so that it reaches out to the ends of the earth with a beautiful unity together. But now here's the background conundrum in it all. See if you can follow this with me. I mean, why is this such a big deal to the Jews, humanly speaking? I mean, aside from it being a break with tradition and practice for them, why is it that this issue, this particular issue, comes back again and again to plague the early church in the New Testament? And if you read through the New Testament, you find it, don't you, in the letters, in Acts, it's an issue that pops up over and over again. Well, I'd suggest that a big reason is because, and, and try to follow me with this, it, it doesn't logically make sense, at least from our human perspective. If God wants a holy people, how can it possibly make any logical sense to tear down the one defense that they might have against the influence of the immoral pagan world outside. How does it make sense to take the wall down? Surely that's just going to compound the problem. The fact of the matter is that with the dawning of the gospel age, which is how we have to start reading, isn't it, and thinking, walls like this, walls like these old walls, are at best now surplus to requirements because something else has happened, and at worst, they can become a catalyst for evil. Now remember, last time we looked at this, Jesus says in Mark 7, let me read these words to remind you again, Mark 7, 21 to 23, Jesus identifies where the real issue is that separates us from God. He says this, From within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So in a nutshell then, what's Jesus saying there? The real problem, our real problem with sin is from the inside out, not from the outside in. So think about this. Here's the point. If my heart then, as Jesus describes it, is a fountain of all of this evil, and I go and build a wall around myself, 
all that happens is that I end up discovering that I'm trapped in a flood of my own sin and uncleanness. Do you see that? And we know that's true, actually, don't we? I mean, think about it. You go on a diet, diet wall, okay? Put that up to, to stop the t- And you still crave foods, don't you? Suddenly, all the cravings kick in. You're thinking about Krispy Kreme donuts all the time when you're on a diet. You remove internet access, lust wall goes up, barrier against lust. And you th- find yourself thinking lustful thoughts. You discover you don't need the internet to be full of lust. You cut up your credit cards. Materialism wall, it's going to stop all this silly spending. And you still find yourself envying what people around you have got. All the wall does is it makes you look a bit more together in life, doesn't it? From the outside. But inside, behind the wall, there's a mess going on still. We know that's true, don't we? So what's the real answer? Well, Peter actually tells us it in verse 16. Have a look. Then I remembered, said Peter, what the Lord had said. John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism, you see, was a baptism of repentance. It was a water baptism. You know, symbolically, what it's doing is washing the outside, isn't it? Cleaning up the exterior. But you, says Jesus, will be baptised with the Holy Spirit going to be more radical than just a bath that's what it's going to be now you've got to love our american cousins yeah they are they are a funny bunch sometimes see here's an interesting example we have tv shows like changing rooms you ever watched anything like that where you know we we come in and we do a what we would think of as a pretty radical renovation on a house so you know we're stripping the wallpaper off building new furniture you know, improving this house wonderfully. We might even add an extension to it, that sort of stuff. Whereas the Americans, they, they have extreme makeover, okay? So this is their version of it. And if you've ever watched it, I've never watched a full episode, but, you know, the adverts are all, this crane and bulldozer come in, and they just love it. The big claw comes down and rips the roof off the house, and you end up with it what's basically a pile of matchwood before they're going to make a start on renovating. And likewise, God's solution is more American than ours, okay? That's (laughs) tongue-in-cheek. God's solution is to recreate people from the inside out. It's not redecoration you need, you see. Not a clean-up. It's total, radical renovation. A new heart. You need a new heart. Listen to the words of the prophets who understood this because they were living amongst a people who would just become so defiled despite all the walls. Ezekiel 36, the prophet writes, quoting from God, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Amazing. The ultimate penalty that you and I deserve, eternal death, because of our sin, has been once and for all dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Hallelujah, that is the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus, and there is full and free forgiveness. We can be forgiven when we come to him. But the ongoing answer now to resisting the pull of sin in my day-to-day life 
is learning to walk in step with the Holy Spirit whom God has given to each one of his children. A new heart, new desires in my heart. And as your knowledge and your love of Jesus grows, he becomes more and more beautiful and precious to you than those temptations that tug at you, pleading for your attention. This is a really important concept to grasp, isn't it, as believers? I mean, here's an illustration ripped from a, a guy called John Piper that I think is really helpful. I mean, he, he basically pictures this as, he, he just says, look, picture the planets. What holds the planets in the solar system in place? Why don't those planets just fly off in every direction, chaotically? Good question, isn't it? If you've done a bit of high school science, you should know that. It's the gravitational pull. The gravitational pull that comes from that massive sun right at the middle of the solar system with a mass that is 333,000 times that of the earth and it holds all the planets in their right place and it's a picture of, of us and how we should be all the planets of your life your sexuality and desires, your aspirations and dreams, your habits and disciplines, your solitude and relationships, your labor and leisure, your thinking and feeling, he writes, are held in orbit by the greatness and gravity and blazing brightness of the supremacy of Jesus Christ at the center of your life. And if he ceases to be the bright, blazing, satisfying beauty at the center of your life, the planets will fly off in confusion. And a hundred things will be out of control, and sooner or later, they will crash into destruction. It's a great picture, isn't it? A new heart with a new love, a great overwhelming love, not walls. Walls make prisons. That's what they do. And that's actually, you know, we, we did Galatians recently, didn't we? That's exactly what the Apostle writes to the Galatians. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 again. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's talking about putting yourself back under laws and rules and walls. You've been freed. Don't use all your efforts now to start rebuilding a prison cell for yourself. Now, this is so counterintuitive that there have always been those, and I'm sure we've all experienced it, within the church who have failed to get it and have tried to put some of those walls back up again. And it never works, do you see? Here's a brilliant example. I mean, I, I'm fairly passionate about church history. One interesting little medieval bit of church history is uh, something called the Anchorites, this movement of people called Anchorites. You ever heard of the Anchorites? They were quite rare. But these were people in the medieval church who requested that they should be bricked up in small cells in the church where they lived for years. Imagine that. Uh, here's a picture. You can actually visit it. it was in, in, uh, in England. It was, was it Julian of Norwich? Norwich was, a, was an anchorite, I think. You may not even have heard that name. Don't worry. Don't bother looking it up. But let me read to you a bit from, from a medieval letter granting the bishop's consent for the enclosure of an anchoress. Her name was Christine. Listen to this. 
we, observing the praiseworthy purpose of the aforesaid Christine, and with the consent also of Sir Matthew, the present rector of the church and the parishioners thereof, have thought it fit to grant license to the said Christine that she may be enclosed there in the manner and for the reasons aforesaid that thus laid aside from public and worldly sights she may be enabled to serve God more freely in every way and having resisted all opportunity for wantonness may keep her heart undefiled from the world. You see the logic that's going on there? How do I keep her holy? Well, I need to hide myself from worldly sights. See, I think we're all prone, aren't we? It's something in our wiring to reach for the trowel <laughs> when the influence of the world comes at us and, and we want to shove up another wall, close ourselves away from it. I mean, take lust, sexual temptation. The medieval church took vows of chastity. They locked themselves away in convents and monasteries. That's how you deal with that. The Victorians covered everything up. I mean, I think it's probably apocryphal, but yet these stories, they even made little skirts for the legs on a table, that sort of thing, you know, to keep lust under control when you look at your table. <laughs> Can't be true, can it? It's a bit weird. Something's gone seriously wrong at that point, hasn't it? In the 1960s, though, the church fought the battle against lust by legislating on the length of skirts. Interesting. Did it work? <laughs> I don't think so. It's really no different, actually, than the Muslim making a woman wear burqas, is it? Than the Taliban, what the Taliban do. At the end of the day, it's all walls. And if all you do is rely on walls, you'll never, you'll never solve the problem. You'll only ever hide the problem. In the church I grew up in, we had plenty of protective walls. To stop the influence of the world coming into people's homes, you mustn't have a TV. Don't have a TV. We were, we were forbidden to go to the cinema, ironically, in our own hometown, uh, but it was all right elsewhere, in case we were seen. Why? Because the cinema is a den of iniquity. And it had, when I questioned it, it was something to do with what couples do at the back. It was never ex in a darkened room. No going to pubs, because obviously you go to a pub, you're going to get drunk. Put the wall up. No rock music, something to do with protecting you from satanic influence of some sort. Now, please don't get me wrong on this. Sometimes removing temptation is good and wise, isn't it? Yeah, that's good advice to give people sometimes, to a point. It's a biblical precaution, actually, isn't it? Jesus gave that, that advice, didn't he? Didn't he? He said, gouge it out. You know, you've got a problem with, with, with things, gouge them out of your life. If you struggle with internet porn, don't use your computer in a private setting where no one can see you. Or get some accountability software, tracks what you look at, reports it to somebody. Yeah? That can be very wise, of course. If you struggle with alcohol, don't stock up the liquor cabinet and spend your evenings at home, alone. I mean, that's just asking for trouble. There's some wisdom there, providing that those things are motivated by a humble knowledge of your own weakness. But there's also two obvious dangers. Remember what I was saying about walls. Walls, they keep things in. That's, that's the problem. That's the first danger. They keep things in. That's the problem with walls. Don't rely on those measures to fix you. Because on their own, 
They won't. They can't do anything for your heart. You need, what you really need, the big solution is a greater pull on your heart. Something that, that captivates you more than these things. Very interesting. See what you make of this. Uh, a Bible teacher once uh, pointed this out to me and just said this. It's an interesting line. You worship your way into porn addiction, he was saying. Very interesting. You worship your way into it. And you must worship your way out of it. Interesting. Something greater must hold your heart. That's the answer. So wars can be dangerous if you lean on them, rely on them. And two, wars can become a big cause of hostility and alienation because wars, their second function, remember, is to keep people out. They nurture pride, wars, in the end. This is where they can go so horribly wrong. I don't do that. I don't do this. I don't go there. It's, it's me who doesn't do it. And then that becomes, you know, you really shouldn't go there, do this. You shouldn't do that. And, of course, the assumption there is maybe if you were to get those walls in place, maybe you could be as good as me. And the world, what the world hears then is that Christianity is, is about Jesus and walls. They, they, they hear that by just looking at how you live and the things you do and the things you say to each other, that Jesus is not enough somehow. So what about you? What about me? What are the walls that we have been building? That's something we need to reflect on, isn't it? Where have we put walls up? What are you, first of all, what are you trusting to protect you and to keep you on the straight and narrow? Is it all about just being clever and putting up walls? And what implications is that going to have on your witness to the world? You've got to think these things through. One danger, you see, for the Christian is to think that the way to stay holy is to physically remove ourselves as far as possible from any interaction with the world and all of its influences. And so you can do this in a number of ways. You can fill your life with church attendance. You can limit your social circle just to Christians and the church community. And there's nothing wrong with being busy and meeting with God's people, but taken to an extreme and you'll no longer be able to fulfill the mission to which Jesus has called his church, to be salt, to be light, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can't do that if you just stay huddled together. It's not wrong to recognize the dangers of their influence, but don't trust that as a strategy to keep you holy. Don't communicate to the world that the gospel is Jesus plus separation from the world. I mean, let me try and just work an illustration as we close. You've probably heard this. You know, the Christian's like a boat and the world is like an ocean. That picture, we're boats on the ocean. And the boat, here's the point, the boat fulfills its purpose, its raison d'etre, its reason for being, by being in the water. That's what boats are for. It's where we want to be. Boat in the water, good. Got it? But water in the boat, problem. Right? And so leaky hulls need time in the dry dock. We need to meet together, and as we meet together, what are we doing? We're making Jesus bigger, so that his gravity holds the planets of our life correctly in place again. We apply God's word to each other. And why do we do that? 
why do we spend time in the dry dock here? So that we can get back out into the water. Now, that's very different from being an anchorite. You know, what an anchorite is, is basically a boat rotting on the beach, isn't it? This cutting yourself off thing. The glorious message of these chapters of Acts, you see, is that the Christian message is for the world. It can go out into the world. And we can take it. Walls hinder mission. And they need to be dismantled, don't they? But the Jewish missionaries who will take this message to the world do not need to fear contamination as they do so. That's the lesson they're learning. Their holiness does not depend on walls of separation. The source of their holiness is a heart changed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And it's the same for you and me. And our calling is the same too. For many of us, the longer that we've been a Christian, this is the interesting thing, isn't it? The less we feel we have in common with the world around us. And so what do we do? We, we, we tend to huddle together. And that can become a problem, can't it? And so the contemporary challenge for you and me here, I think, is not to let our walls, the differences between us and those that we live amongst, become a barrier to sharing our faith. It keeps us away from them. And it can be very hard, I know, to get back into the water after a long spell in the dry dock. It's really hard to get going again. Well, let me give you a few minutes just to chew over where you might have put up walls that hinder your being a witness to others. Just for a moment, think about that, and then I'll pray in closing. Father, we thank you for the, the glorious truths of your word right here, that the gospel is for all nations. It is for us, unclean though we are. We can come to you and find cleansing and healing and restoration, forgiveness for our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that the answer to us becoming holy is, is not about just us putting up walls and working as hard as we can, but is, a, is about walking in step with your spirit, is about loving the Lord Jesus more and more. Father, may he become that mass in the center of our lives that holds everything else in its right place. Help us to be wholeheartedly devoted to him and help us to be witnesses for you in the world around us reaching them with the good news of the gospel and your love for the nations we ask that you'd help us in this we ask this in your name amen well in a moment we're going to celebrate the lord's supper together before we do that, we're going to sing briefly a, a very short um, hymn, Holy God in Love Became. So if you want to stand as we sing this, uh, and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's stand.